1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment. First, I want to thank our newest patron, Bobby O. We really appreciate your support. All of the money you donate to our podcast goes back into our podcast. It helps us pay for our website hosting as well as our podcast hosting costs. Thank you so much. And we also would like to thank our longtime patron supporters, Penny R, Julie M, Patricia C., Thomas S, Elaine R, Krista D, Douglas S, Adam B, J.R.S, Melissa K, Corin F, Megan G, Mark B, Sarah W, Lynn B, Heidi T, Carrie, Bradley G, Laura G, Harry M, Wendy C, Justin H, Mickey B, IDC, Vicky R, Molly M, Lisa M, and Mary B. And if you would like to join these fantastic group of people who help support our podcast, head on over to ohiomysteries.com and select the Support Us Through Patreon button. When you join our Patreon team, as a bonus, you will also see extra content from us that only our patrons get. Thanks again, everyone, for your support. And now it's time to throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon
0: Journal. Hi, everybody. We're going to lighten things up today because this episode is going to leave you smiling, if not outright laughing, as you run to the internet to see if it's true. It is. Every word of it. It's one of the stories baseball historians love to talk about because it's so fantastical. A pitcher dons his Cleveland uniform for the first time. He's one out from winning his debut game. He gets struck unconscious by lightning, then pops up, sporting a burned hole in the chest of his uniform, and demands to finish the game. And why? Because of a contract that is undoubtedly one of the most bizarre agreements in the history of Major League Baseball. You don't have to be a sports fan to enjoy this one, so stick with us. This is the story of Ray Caldwell, with kudos, by the way, to the research of ESPN writer Ryan Hawkinsmith. Ray Caldwell was born in Pennsylvania in 1888, the son of Anna and Walter Caldwell. From the very beginning, his life had some unexpected twists. His parents divorced for one thing, something exceedingly rare in the 19th century, and his dad, a minister, moved to Europe. His mom remarried to a telegraph operator, and Caldwell followed in his footsteps with a real passion for the work. Even after Caldwell reached the big leagues, he would take off-season jobs with railroads, just to be their telegraph operator. As for baseball, well, Caldwell was a natural and an aberration. He pitched right-handed, he hit from his left. It was a very desirable combination. He started semi-pro ball at the age of 20, and very quickly he was picked up by New York. In 1910, he signed with the Highlanders, who would become the Yankees in a couple more years. Players gave him the nickname Slim because of his 6'2", 190-pound frame. Back then, New York was a pretty pathetic team. Here's another one of those Caldwell moments that make you think, no way could this happen. At one point, Caldwell threw 52 consecutive scoreless innings. Now, for non-baseball fans... That's like a pitcher playing almost six complete games in a row without the other team scoring a single run. But here's the crazy thing. For all 52 innings, his team couldn't score either. That's how pathetic New York was when he joined. Eventually, things got better in 1914, when Caldwell was 25, he went 18-9 and with a 1.94 ERA. Again, for the non-sports fans, let's just say those stats made him a rising superstar. Unfortunately, Caldwell had a problem, a drinking problem, and it was a bad one. He was repeatedly fined and suspended for being drunk, disorderly, and just a general bad attitude. One year, his fines amounted to more than half his annual paycheck, and he convinced the team owner to forgive them. In response, the Yankees' manager at the time, who had fined Caldwell to begin with, resigned from the team. And that brings us to another of those, what? moments. In 1916, Yankees manager Bill Donovan was at wit's end with Caldwell and suspended him for two weeks. When Caldwell didn't return after two weeks, Donovan said, okay, then you're suspended for six months, the remainder of that season. The thing is, during this time, even Caldwell's family didn't know where the heck he was. He had vanished from the face of the planet. He reappeared the following March, a week late for spring training, and refused to say where he was. The Yankees, always hoping he would one day settle down and become the pitcher everyone knew him to be, took him back. It wasn't until much later that it was revealed Caldwell had used his suspension to travel to Panama, where he pitched the season under an assumed name. Caldwell's off-the-field drinking and partying continued unabated. He was once charged with grand larceny for allegedly stealing a ring. He was taken to court by his wife for not financially supporting her and their son. Things got so bad, the Yankees even hired two detectives to trail him 24-7 and report on everything he was up to. The proverbial straw that broke the camel's back came in 1918 when Caldwell went AWOL again. He left the Yankees in mid-August and joined a shipbuilding firm. Now, he had a pretty good reasoning for doing this. World War I was on, and Caldwell's number came up in the draft. But he could avoid military service if he was working for the shipbuilder. Even better, this particular shipbuilder, had a company baseball team. And so Caldwell was permitted to play rather than work a day on the assembly line. However, the Yankees had not approved any of this. And so that winter, before the start of the 1919 season, the team gave up and let him go. They traded him to Boston. And here's another one of those things that make you go, hmm... The war was over, and so Caldwell joined the Red Sox that spring. And on road trips, he roomed with another rising 24 year old superstar. But both of these men were prone to outrageous behavior, and by July, Boston decided it was a horrible combination and they could only keep one of them. The bad boy they decided to keep was Babe Ruth. Caldwell was set adrift but he was going to be thrown one more lifeline. It was offered by the Cleveland Indians. It was the dog days of summer. The season was already more than half over, and Cleveland team manager Tris Speaker had a plan to try and revive the career of a man in whom so many saw potential. He met with Caldwell and slipped a contract before him. Caldwell read it then looked up confused. You left out one word, Tris, Caldwell said. Where it says, I've got to get drunk after every game, the word not has been left out. It should read that I'm not to get drunk. Tris' speaker shook his head. Oh no, the contract language was correct. It says that you are to get drunk. That's right. The contract spelled out a very specific routine. On game day, Caldwell was to pitch and then go get plastered. He was free to skip the ballpark the next day and sleep off his hangover. The day after that, he had to report to the ballpark early and run as many wind sprints as the manager thought he needed. The day after that, he would throw batting practice On the fifth day, he would pitch another game and then repeat his mandated drinking duties. Tris Speaker was hoping that giving Caldwell one completely unrestrained day of drinking, followed by a full day of recovery with no repercussions, would keep him fit the other three days. Caldwell shrugged and said, okay, I'll sign. He took the mound five days later. It was August the 24th, 1919, a hot day, but a clear sky as 20,000 fans filed into league bark. No one could have suspected what they were about to witness. Caldwell was at his best. His fastball was above average, his curve was in a class all its own, and he had a devastating spitball, which was still legal at the time. The crowd knew his history, they knew the stakes were high for him, and they cheered him on as he kept the Philadelphia Athletics to just four hits and a walk through eight innings. But the weather was changing. Clouds were rolling in off Lake Erie. The winds started picking up. Cleveland needed three more outs to end the game. Caldwell was working fast. He got two easy infield pop-outs, so just one more out to victory. But the storm had finally reached the field. Caldwell set himself for what everyone hoped would be the final pitch of the day. But at that very moment, lightning flashed from the sky. The players on the field dove to the ground. Shortstop Ray Chapman will later say he felt a surge of electricity go down his leg. Cleveland catcher Steve O'Neill took off his metal mask and threw it as far as he could, afraid it might attract a bolt. A moment later, the eight Cleveland position players rose from the ground, dusted themselves off, and looked around. The ninth man on the field was still lifeless. Ray Caldwell was on his back. Out cold, arms spread wide. The first man to reach him touched him and leaped back, warning everyone he'd just been zapped. So everyone stood and stared, terrified to touch him again. Caldwell's chest was smoldering from where a bolt had burned his uniform. They began to think Caldwell was dead. And then, suddenly, Caldwell groaned he lifted his head. With no help from his teammates, who were still keeping their distance, he rolled over onto his knees and got to his feet. Everyone was rejoicing. They encouraged Caldwell to walk off the field and stood on both sides of him, remembering not to touch him. But Caldwell wouldn't go. No way, he said. I have one more out to get. Well, you can imagine the reaction. This guy's chest had just been on fire, for God's sake, but he refused to go. Speaker eventually agreed to let Caldwell finish his game. Caldwell reached a hand toward the shortstop and said, Give me the danged ball and turn me toward the plate. The umpires, watching this development, shrugged. The A's sent out the next man in their lineup, shortstop Jumpin' Joe Dugan. The fans that hadn't gone running after the lightning strike returned to their seats. Caldwell pitched. Dugan took a hard swing and sent the ball skirting hard to third base. Willie Gardner fielded it, rushed it to first, and Dugan was out. And that's how Ray Caldwell survived a lightning strike— to finish his first game with the Indians, and quite possibly the most important game of his life. After the game, he told the Cleveland Plain Dealer, uh, eh, felt like somebody came up with a board and hit me on the top of the head and knocked me down. History did not record if Ray fulfilled what his contract required of him next. He was supposed to go out and drink himself silly, and he certainly had earned it. But history does show the rest of 1919 went smoothly, and the system devised by Tris Speaker, who became a legend for his innovative thinking and quirky strategies, seemed to work. As a matter of fact, three weeks after his electrifying debut, Caldwell threw a no-hitter against the team that had released him before the season, the Yankees and people reveled in his revenge. He finished his short season 5-1 with an exceptional 1.71 ERA. The next year, in 1920, Caldwell won 20 games in helping the Indians reach the pinnacle of their profession. The team won its first World Series. But the fairy tale ends there. The very next year, Caldwell began to slide and he just couldn't keep his drinking under control. After an attempt to use him in the bullpen, Cleveland let him go. Caldwell bounced around the minor leagues for 12 more years and did pretty well making a living at it, but no major league team was willing to risk taking him on. When he retired in 1933, He was a 43 year old grandpa on his fourth marriage. He spent the rest of his life running a farm he bought in Frewsburg, New York, teaching baseball clinics for kids, and working as a telegraph operator for the Buffalo, Rochester, and Pittsburgh Railway. He died in 1967. Today, there are many baseball historians who believe Caldwell was one of the greatest pitching talents of all time. He just never gave himself the chance to prove it.
1: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Also, like, subscribe, leave a good comment, and tell a friend. That is the best way to help us grow. Ohio Mysteries is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Head on over to evergreenpodcast.com to check out more podcasts from the Evergreen Group, You can also see us featured on KillerPodcasts.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the Bride and Groom?